Praise the Lord. Uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Right, we're going to be looking at uh, where our scripture reading was, uh, where we just had our scripture reading. Luke chapter 19, and I'll begin with this. Um, so the date is April 1st, the year 30 A.D. Jesus enters Jerusalem and what has been become known as, as Palm Sunday because people threw their palm branches in the street as Jesus descended down off of the Mount of Olives. But what it really is is that the king of Jerusalem had finally come. And an amazing thing about that day is because so many people proclaimed something that they didn't even realize they knew what they were proclaiming on that day. His entrance produced excitement uh, in the people, finally, that a deliverer was here. But it wasn't the kind of deliverer that Scripture talked about. It also produced murder in the hearts of those who were his enemies. It produced jealousy and betrayal in the hearts of one of his disciples. And it produced deep, deep, deep sorrow in the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled this message, Prophecy and Providence in Our Lord's Entrance. And as we look at the biblical narrative, we're going to look primarily in Luke chapter 19. We will see the role that prophecy played as we kick off the Holy Week, as this week kicks off with the Lord entering Jerusalem. So we're going to take a look at the role that prophecy played, and we're going to take a, role, a look at the role that providence played, God's providence in all of it. And that we will see that God is a sovereign God, a holy God, who all things do indeed work according to the counsel of his will. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on the text, shortly before this, Jesus performed one of the greatest miracles that he ever performed. Jesus went to the cemetery of his dear friend Lazarus, who had been in the tomb four days. And Jesus among all the wailers and the mourners, among all the witnesses who were there, called Lazarus out of the tomb. I don't know if we get that picture. You know, it's one thing if, if somebody drops dead and you, you know, rise, and the guy rises up. But this was all over. Jesus goes to the cemetery, goes to the tomb and calls Lazarus out. And I could preach a whole nother message on what that must have looked like, but suffice to say that that was probably the miracle of miracles in the eyes of the people. You know, there was thought back then that when a person died, that their spirit hovered the ground, uh, hovered the grave for three days. Isn't it amazing Jesus delayed one more day? He did it on the fourth day, right? So 
Jesus does this miracle. The word spreads. He's in Bethany. He's five miles outside of Jerusalem. Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived in Bethany. So the word spreads. And now Jesus says he's approaching Jerusalem, right? The people have heard this great thing. And having heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and knowing of all the other miracles he did, right? The blind see, the lame walk, all the other great things that he did. The crowd is convinced that this is the deliverer of Israel. This is it. The guy can raise someone out of the grave. He's done it multiple times. He makes the blind see, causes the lame to walk, and people rejoice. This has to be the deliverer. If he could do this, our problems with Rome are over, man, because he could just go boom, and Rome will be vanquished. So messianic fervor is filling the air. They're filling the air. We got it. This is the guy. I heard of all the miracles. John tells us not only when he was descending the Mount of Olives, but the people who were there who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead were there exclaiming it too. So now there's eyewitnesses going forward saying, this is him, this is Jesus, this is the one who raised him from the dead. But also with this as well, in this messianic fervor is the idea of the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, if you look at, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 17, verses 20 and 22, it says this, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So the Pharisees knew Jesus is preaching, John the Baptist was preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. So this controversy jesus are you going to be the one to fulfill the kingdom of god and in their mind the kingdom of god was davidic reign of a sovereign independent israel the kingdom of god our messiah will take the reign so in luke 17 when the pharisees ask him that they're asking him when just tell me when you know they're trying to trap him really Tell me when the kingdom of God is. And Jesus answers them and says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. You're looking at him. Now the disciples also were caught up in a similar thing. Right, The disciples were also anticipating, having been with him for three years, they're also anticipating the kingdom of God. In Luke 19, just go over a little bit. Luke 19, verse 11. It reads, And while they were listening to these things, now Jesus was at Zacchaeus' house, right? And while listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And notice what it says. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. The disciples supposed. Remember when the disciples were on the road with Jesus? Hey, Lord, which one of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? Remember James and John's mother went to Jesus and said, Hey, promise me one thing, that my two sons will be on your right and on your left hand in the kingdom of God. They're thinking the disciples are convinced. This is it. It's now. We're going to witness the Messiah take the throne in Jerusalem, and we're going to witness the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned earlier, the simple thought process was, 
Well, if he can raise the dead, if he can heal the blind, if he can cause the lame to walk, if he can walk on water, if he can cast out demons, it's got to be it. This is the guy we've been waiting for, right? But notice, it didn't have anything to do with their sin and their estate before God. Right? So this is the background to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And in verses 28 to 35, right, we see the first thing, right? Here we see the prophetic fulfillment of this, right? And, you know, in verses 30 to, you know, 33, Jesus says, Go into a village opposite you in which you will enter. You'll find a colt tied upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here if anybody asks you. What are you doing? You're going to say that the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away found it just as they had told them. And as the owners were untying the colt, the, as, the, um, as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt. Right? So here we see Jesus telling them, Go to such and such place, go find a colt full of a donkey, bring it here, right? And they go, and it just as Jesus said, if anybody asks you, right, you're going to say that the Lord has need of it. In so doing, the prophecy of Zechariah found in Zechariah 9.9 is fulfilled. Now what you're going to see, if you really give yourself to study of the, the last week of Jesus Christ, is you're going to see a lot of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. On a daily basis. Zechariah 9 9, 500 years before Christ, says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. By the way, in the Old Testament, when you see Zion, that is Jerusalem, right? That is Jerusalem in Zion. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in, trumpet, uh, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, he is endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. All three of what are called the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic gospels capture this, right? They all speak, they all link it to this prophecy. And as Jesus mounts the donkey and descends the Mount of Olives, Luke tells us that the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. I want you to notice that, right? As they begin to descend, so you come down the Mount of Olives, you go across the Kidron Valley, and you go up to Zion, the Temple Mount. As he's descending, who are the ones that are praising God? It is the disciples. The disciples are praising God. The disciples are the ones that are saying, oh my goodness, this three years, all the things that we have seen, praise God. Hosanna, praise God in the highest. They're they're just like, this is the moment for them. They're believing that this is the crowning moment of Christ's ministry on earth. And I want to point out to you that the crowd that builds is not merely the disciples, but the crowd that builds includes other people. 
right? So now the fever is catching, right? The disciples lead it off by saying, praise God, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as they're coming now, more and more people are hearing, who is this guy? This is Jesus, the one we told you about in Bethany, who raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're all singing, they're all praising as I mentioned to you, Luke 19, 11, right? For they believed that now was the time that the kingdom of God was going to be revealed. And they go out and they're singing the halal, the Jewish song of praise found in Psalm 118. You're going to find that Psalm 118 plays a significant role, right? We're talking about the prophecy that kicks off the last week. And they're singing the, the, the Hebrew song, the Messianic Psalm of Israel. And as a sign of homage, and as a sign of nationalistic fervor, they throw some of their clothing in front of Jesus as he passes, and the waving of palm branches. I don't know if they still do. When I was a kid all over Brooklyn, you saw palm branches made into the sign of the cross. But here they are waving as Jesus is passing by. They're waving these palm branches and, and shouting out praise and shouting out hallelujah. John, if you turn over your Bibles, look at John 12, 13. John 12, 13. Keep your finger in Luke 19 and just go over to John 12, 13. It says they took branches out of palm trees and they went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Notice what they're crying out here. That word Hosanna means, oh God, save now. That's what it means. Deliver now. Give salvation now. They are crying for Jesus to bring salvation to the nation now. But it is not to be set free from sin. Rather, it is for the deliverance of Israel from Roman oppression. The sovereignty, the independence. They want to restore the kingdom of David, the zenith of Israel's government. Turn over in your Bibles with me. Keep your finger in Luke 19, but I want you to turn over to Psalm 118. I want to show you this. Psalm 118. Matter of fact, a great psalm to meditate upon this week. Psalm 18, and we're going to pick up from verses 19 through 26. Look what it says. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I shall enter through them, and I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. There goes Hosanna. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, for we, uh, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Prophetically, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. And it's speaking of Christ's entrance as he is coming into Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 118.26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. What was it that they cried? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 being filled right there. Psalm 118 is spoken of at the last Passover supper of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 26.30 tells us, and Mark's gospel tells us as well, at the conclusion of the Last Supper, at the conclusion of the Last Supper, they sang a hymn and they left. You know what hymn they sang? Psalm 118, 22 to 25. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Think about it. As they're marching through, as they're going, trust me, there are scribes, there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees in the crowd, and they are rejecting Jesus. They have openly rejected Jesus. And we're going to see what happens. They can't contain themselves at what is transpiring. But here we see prophecies that were written some 500, some 700 years before Christ are being fulfilled right in that moment, unbeknownst to most of the people. There's something significant about that. One of the things that is significant is we are seeing prophecies being fulfilled right in our midst today and god is not short or slack concerning judgment but the word of god tells us that he is patient that all would repent all would turn from their sin and all would turn to christ and so we see the portion that prophecy has played in this. Now we're going to take a look at the providence of God. Look at verse 39 of Luke 19. As they're catching the scene, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. We see in verse 39 the indignation of the Pharisees at the adulation, at, at the praise, at the fervor that is going on. As the people cry out from the prophets and the Psalms, the Pharisees, listen, I want you to get this, the Pharisees recognized the messianic implications of what the people are saying and what they're crying out. Now listen, when they do, pretending to be righteous, we know that already they are murderous in their heart. 
John 13, 3 says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. By, by Jesus' definition, in Jesus' providence, this was all as it should be. God had declared this in the past, and this was coming to pass, just as it had been written about him. But still, the Pharisees are livid. They're livid at what they're seeing. For since the resurrection of Lazarus, this is crazy stuff, but since the resurrection of Lazarus, the Pharisees had conspired to kill Jesus. It was already done. They were just trying to figure out now how to execute it. But they came together. They agreed that the best thing for them is that Jesus would be killed. But it just did not go to Jesus also. And so in a false righteousness, what do they say to Jesus? Stop your disciples from saying the things that they are saying. They give us a strong word, that word rebuke. The Greek word is epitomeo. And what it literally means is warning to prevent something from happening. You know, it's a rebuke in a fundamental sense, like stop saying it because something bad is going to happen. John's Gospel records the Pharisees as saying to one another, you see that you are doing no good, for now the world, the world, is going after, them, after him. Now notice, they said all of this while the Scriptures tells us, for they had planned not only to kill Jesus, but here's the twisted thing, but they planned to kill Lazarus as well. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. I want, I, I want you to see this. John eleven fifty one tells us from that day they planned together to kill him, Jesus. But look at John 12, 10. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death. That's a cold heart, man. The guy was four days in the tomb, buried, raised from the dead, goes out there, and they're going to, okay, well, he was dead, now we're going to kill him again. See, they knew with certainty the significance of what the people were saying and the prophetic reference it signified. And their murderous hearts were threatened. Inside, they burned anger and jealousy and rage pretending to be righteous pretending to be concerned they attempt to rebuke jesus and what does jesus say verse 40 and he answered them and he said to them i'll tell you if these become silent the stones will cry out. Here again is the providence of God. Jesus, knowing the plan of God, knowing the hearts of the Pharisees, He knew what was in their hearts. But yet the, the Pharisees are responsible 
for their own attitudes. For They carry the responsibility of this, but Jesus knew nonetheless. And Jesus knew more importantly the significance of what this triumphant entry means. And Jesus responds to the rebuke with a rebuke of his own when he tells them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You know, stones in Scripture, interesting, stones in Scripture are usually referred to in times of judgment. In times of judgment. In Joshua 24, 27, Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone, he put a memorial stone there, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, lest you deny your God. So John figuratively assigns personality to the stone. And the stone is a witness. When they see that stone, should they depart from God, it will be a witness for them. So it's associated with judgment. We see this also in the New Testament with John the Baptist. Luke 3, 8. John the Baptist sees the Pharisees coming down to the River Jordan and he thinks they want to be baptized. And by the way, if you ever want to see an exercise in political correct speech, all you have to do is study the life of John the Baptist. John, in his ever political correct way, says, Who warned you, you brood of vipers? To flee the wrath of God to come. I guess he wasn't wearing the what would Jesus do bracelet at that moment. And in Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist says this. Therefore, he's speaking to the Pharisees, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, now here it comes, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That was a whole thing about it, but when he warned them, you know, the Pharisees said, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, baptism of John the Baptist was a proselyte baptism. If somebody converted from a pagan religion to Judaism, there was the ceremonial washings that, that needed to take place to welcome them in as a Jew. So the Pharisees see John the Baptist doing this, and they're thinking, oh, he's making proselyte when he says, who warned you to flee the wrath of God? They said, what are you talking about? We're sons of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. We're Jews. We're good. We don't need baptism. They realized that John the Baptist was baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, and he was doing that within Israel. In other words, saying that Israel has now become corrupt. Israel is now like the, the pagan. It's more like the pagan than he is the true son of Abraham. So he's baptizing within Israel, and their response is, we don't need baptism, we don't need forgiveness of sin, we're good, we have Abraham as our father, and John the Baptist says, well, I'll tell you what, don't tell me you have Abraham as your father, because I'll tell you what, the Lord God can raise up sons to himself from these own stones. 
Know what we need? The Christian church? We need John the Baptist. Because many people who profess the name of Jesus Christ are saying, don't talk to me, I'm already a Christian. I'm already saved. I don't need anything else. I don't need repentance. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need this. I'm good. I said a prayer. I walked an aisle. I did this, that, and the other thing. But now it is time for repentance to be preached in the house of God. And it don't matter what you call yourself. It matters who you are. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. It matters whether or not you're saved. Too many people out there calling themselves Christian. The last survey I saw, almost over half of the United States call themselves Christians, which is why I don't use the word Christian that often. But I talk about believers in Christ. See, many people can call themselves Christian. A church can call you a Christian. To most people, a Christian is somebody who is not Muslim, who's not Jewish, who's not Hindu, who's not Buddhist. So therefore, by default, I'm a Christian. Which, by the way, by the way, this is just an FYI. You ever hear about the surveys? You ever hear the surveys? Oh, more people are leaving Christianity than ever before. Oh, the church is dying. Oh, the church is doing this, that. People are just chucking Christianity aside. But you know who all those people are? Those are all the people who call themselves a Christian because if you read the rest of the survey, they don't attend church. They don't read the Bible. They're not praying. They're not doing all the other things that the Word of God say would be synonymous with a Christian. And so these are people that informalized denominations that are all abandoning these liberal formalized denominations but they fail to tell you that those churches that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that preach repentance of sin that believe the gospel as an errant infallible word of God guess what those churches are growing but you know does the world want you to know that no they don't want you to know that go back to Luke 19 verse 40 what did Jesus mean when he said I tell you these stones will cry out now we know right remember when Jesus had the the confrontation with Peter back in Matthew 16 and he says you are Peter Petras little stone And upon this rock, massive boulder, I will build my church. Well, the word here for stone in the Greek is not that word. The word here for stone in the Greek talks about a large stone, kind of like a millstone. Now, I think it's rather interesting, Jesus' comment here. These stones will cry out. Now, I'm not very dogmatic about this but i believe that jesus is referring to the temple and the huge blocks of polished white granite stones that form the temple and i believe that he's using it in figurative language for judgment just as i've showed you in some of the other examples in the scripture It's not a little rock that's along the side of the road that Jesus is referring to, but he's referring to these big, big, big stones. And one of my reasons for thinking that is that Jesus 
in referring to the temple, one of the first things that he does on Monday is what? He goes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and cast out the money changers and the merchants who were there. It would seem to be correct that if I were to shut these people up, that the stones will testify against the nation. And one of the things that Jesus does when he goes in on Monday, and we're going to see that this week, but when Jesus goes in on Monday, he cleanses, quote, unquote, the temple. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of thieves, quoting the prophet Jeremiah, who said the very same thing right before judgment fell in Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. Judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. You know, there used to be a court in the temple and they would have to take the Roman money because it was pagan money and exchange it for temple money. And there were people that did the exchange. And guess what they did? Well, if you came with $5 of temple money, they gladly took that Roman money and paid you back $2 in temple money. And among them were also those that were selling animals for the sacrifice. Not the lambs and all the better animals, but the turtle doves, the smaller animals that only the poor could afford. And so as the feast would come, People would come and say, I don't have a lamb. Okay, well, two turtle doves. And do you think they got them at bargain basement prices? No. As a matter of fact, that area of the temple was referred to the, uh, the bazaar of Annas. Annas, who was one of the chief priests. Because they were making money like crazy in the name of God. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Monday in his righteous indignation, he brings the first judgment to that temple. And he casts them out. I want you to know something. According to the Pharisees, he had no authority to do that. He just did it. He just did it. Just walked in, flipped the place upside down, threw out the money changes, and took his whips, right? Turned the tables over the people who were selling the animal. Why? What does it uh, signify? It signifies that the temple worship had become polluted. By the way, this was the second temple, what's referred to as the second temple. It's really the third temple, right? The first one was the Solomonic Temple. Right, and you read Second Chronicles chapter seven. You could read about the dedication, how the Shekinah of glory fell. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture on that place. In five eighty six, the Babylonians.
because Judah was apostate. The Babylonians, as God had predicted, came and captured Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and burned it down. That's the first temple. The Spirit of God had departed that temple. He was no longer in the Holy of Holies. Then in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, the Babylonians had taken captive the people. We know that Ezra, Nehemiah get a charter from the government and they go back to rebuild the temple. But when they rebuild the temple, all they rebuild is the outer walls. The rest of the temple they desecrate. And you know the end of Nehemiah. Starts off great. It's one of the saddest endings of any book. The people went back to the way they were, basically. But then Herod comes to power. Herod's called the king of the Jews. The problem was Herod wasn't a Jew. He was installed by the Roman government. The people hated Herod. Herod. They hated the Herodians. Well, Herod begins to seek favor for the Jews, and he tells them, you know what? I'm going to rebuild the temple. And he rebuilds the temple, and it takes 70 years. And Josephus and some of the historians record that the ancient temple was white, granite stones, huge stones. And in the morning as you would go to Jerusalem, because it sits up on the hill, right? It sits up on the hill. So the sun would rise. The sun would beam off of those white, shiny, huge stones. You know the psalm that says, I lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Are you familiar with that psalm? That's called the psalm of ascent. The pilgrims, as they would come up to Jerusalem for the feast, would sing that song as they were ascending up to Zion. I lift up my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. Where does the help come? My help comes from the Lord who is in that temple right over there. And Herod builds a beautiful temple, finishes the work in A.D. 64. And we're going to see what happens to that temple. There is one other point I want to point out to you with this. Stay with me. There is a purpose in this, okay? There's one other point I want to point out to you. And that is this. During all of this, during this exchange with the Pharisees, during teacher rebuke your people, right? During all of this, what is happening to the crowd? The crowd is rejoicing. The crowd is praising. The crowd is singing the songs of Zion. You would think that this would be all so successful. But where was Jesus' heart? And it should be noted also that the people had a form of godliness. But they denied its power. They said all the right words, not even realizing what they were saying. They were used in this portion of providence and this portion of providence and prophecy. They were used, both of it, but they didn't know to whom these praises were addressed. Paul talks about a people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. How do they deny it? By their life. But God had planned 
that a testimony would be offered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the king would be proclaimed. And that's exactly what happened. The king now has entered his city. Look with me at verse 41. Very out of place verse, if you would. And when he approached the city, he wept over it. You would think with all the praise, with all the worship, with everything that was going on, oh, Messiah's here, Messiah's here. You would have, been, would have thought that Jesus would have been, wow, man, this is my moment, this is my time. But as he enters the city, he is crying. Josephus, the historian, estimates that when the mandatory feast would come, the population of Jerusalem with all the pilgrims coming in would soar to two million. Two million people in Jerusalem. And despite the adulation from the crowd, despite all the hosannas, despite blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus' heart is broken. Broken. For he's been rejected by his nation, as the Gospel of John says. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And that word wept doesn't mean that Jesus, when he entered, had little tears streaming down his eyes. That word wept means that Jesus cried aloud. Deep crying. Deep groaning. Wailing. This is what it is saying as he enters the city. He's wailing. He's crying out loud. It's uncontrollable. It's audible. For Christ knew of the superficiality of his people who are praising him. And Christ knew further that their rejection of him was going to be costly. In his omniscience, Christ knew the penalty that lay in store for these people. The Word of God tells us, be not deceived, right? God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it's not that the inhabitants of Israel will not repent, but because of their sin, because of their rejection, because of their apostasy, they're unable to repent. And that is why they did not recognize the time of their visitation, the time of their visitation, when Messiah was there, when salvation was available. As a matter of fact, we know the rest of the story, right? Just a few days later, many of these people who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are going to be used and manipulated with the same crowd type of mentality and say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. As a matter of fact, they take it even further. When, when a pagan man like Pilate can find no guilt in Christ and he's going, why? What evil has this man done? They say, release to us Barabbas. His blood be upon us and his blood be upon our children. And knowing all of this, Jesus foretells of the day of God's judgment upon the nation. Look at verses 42 to 44. 
Jesus says this, oh, he cries over Jerusalem. If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus predicts, he prophesies exactly what happens in the year A.D. 70. The Romans in response to multiple insurrections of zealots, finally send a legion force and they surround Jerusalem. They lay siege to Jerusalem. Nothing going in, nothing coming out. The city begins to starve. The Roman commander was a general named by the name of Titus Vespasian. And he determines we're going to build these ramparts and we're going to build these ramparts and at the appropriate time when the ramparts are complete, we are going to go into Jerusalem and we're going to level the place. We're not going to deal with these insurrections anymore. To get his troops whipped up into a frenzy, the commanders tell their troops, hey, the temple is filled with gold and silver. Anything you take is yours. You can take whatever spoils you have. They also go on to tell the soldiers that interlace between the boulders are gold. When the order is given, Roman troops begin to go up the rampart. They enter the city. They slaughter men, women, and children. It is estimated that a million people were killed. 95,000 prisoners were taken by the Romans, sent to Caesarea Philippi to either become uh, gladiators or to become slaves. And what happened to the temple? The Romans entered the temple, desecrated the temple, took everything they could find of value in the temple, and here's what happened. Because they were incited by the gold, they left not one stone upon another, just as Jesus had predicted. When you go to Israel now and you see where the ancient Davidic temple is, all that is there is the retaining wall. Those aren't the stones of the temple, the retaining wall. The Romans would eventually burn the temple and everything in it. And since that time in A.D. 70, there are no more animal sacrifices. Right? Why? because the temple was the only place authorized to perform animal sacrifices, and so they've been destroyed. And this is what happened when the people said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. 
So we've seen a few things here today. Number one, we see the role of prophecy is played in the last week of Jesus' life. Prophecies from uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah. We see them. And as we study the Word of God this week, you're going to see more and more of these prophecies coming to fruition in the life of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, a good reading for you this week would be Psalm 22. There you have the prophetic utterance of Jesus upon the cross as He's being crucified. Right? We see God's providence at work as all things happen exactly as He said they would. As the plan of redemption came together. We also see personal responsibility for those who have rejected our Lord and rejected our Messiah. You know, Peter says this in Acts 2.23, speaking of Jesus, he says, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan of God. There's the providence of God. Jesus was delivered up against the, uh, uh, against the, uh, by the predetermined plan of God, the foreknowledge of God. And then he says this, you nailed to a cross, pointing to their personal responsibility by the hands of godless men. And here we are now, 2,000 years later. You might be asking, okay, well, that's great. What does this have to do with anything? Well, let me tell you something. Prophecy and providence are still at work by our sovereign, living, glorious God. You see, we see the invasion of Russia into the Ukraine, and we hear these things about China, and we, we hear these things about Iran, and who wants to destroy Israel. We look at our nation, and we see the institutions falling faster than we can ever remember. We see godless government. We see godless practices. We see terrible things. And the natural inclination as a human being is to get worried, is to get afraid, but God is sovereign. And God is on the throne. And we don't see tomorrow. But God sees tomorrow. God knows tomorrow. God has orchestrated tomorrow. And the day after. And the month after. And the year after. But I'm going to tell you this. Jesus is coming. And he's coming soon. And I don't mean soon like several hundred years. I mean soon, soon. He is coming. And we that are believers in Jesus Christ can entrust ourselves to God's prophetic word. And we can entrust ourselves to God's providence in our life. And we can entrust ourselves completely and wholly that he will work out all things just as he has said. And in there is our comfort. Our comfort doesn't come from the next guy who's going to be president. Our comfort doesn't come from this party or that party. Our comfort is not in Wall Street. If you call yourself a believer in Christ, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, if you have confessed and repented your sins and cried out to God for mercy, if you have put your complete faith and trust into the crucified Christ, 
who paid for your sins on the cross, who made atonement for your sins on the cross, who physically rose from the dead, not a ghost, not a phantom, was flesh and blood, who was beheld, who was touched after his resurrection, who ate and carried out all of the physical actions that you and I would do who after his resurrection ascended into heaven and before his disciples, whom five over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ, who history books like Josephus and Tacitus and all the others testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have placed your faith and trust in him, in that person, the only person who could atone for your sins, the only person who could grant forgiveness. You could have done the most heinous things. You could have done the most wretched things. You could have done the things that only you know. But if you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, then Christ offers you new life, salvation in him. And I'm going to say something. That doesn't mean the road is easy. Because if you come to Christ thinking that, this is it, zippity-doo-dah, it's going to be this way until either Jesus comes or I die, forget about that. We were just having a conversation before church, and I said, just about every single person that I know who is a believer in Jesus Christ is being hammered at this point. Whether it is illness, whether it is the circumstances of life, whatever it may be, Christians in this nation are being tried like no time before that I've ever seen. So what's the response? The great hymn, Rock of Ages. There's a little stanza in that song that says this nothing to thy cross I bring only to thy cross I cling are you clinging to the cross of Christ Christian believer in Christ are you clinging to the cross of Christ you may say to me, Pastor, I'm clinging, man, but I'll, I'll, I'm barely holding on. Do you believe our God is sovereign? Do you believe our God knows everything? Do you believe that our Lord Jesus suffered and died and knows and is familiar with our sufferings? Then if that's you, Hold on. Hold on. Don't turn away. The world is calling and the world is yelling at you to turn away. There's no hope. Everything has gone wrong, the world says. Don't let go. What has Jesus done for you? Where is your God? The devil swears that to every believer every single day. Hold on. 
And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if it sounds like mere foolishness to you, then I call you to repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. We're beginning the Holy Week this week as, as we meditate as a church and, and we dwell upon what Christ did for us on the cross. We cannot forget that. We must embed that in our mind. We must look at the atonement that was paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ and we must hold to that. We must cling to that with every fiber of our being. Turn to Christ. Be saved. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That means to entrust yourself completely, wholly, fully, to trust in nothing else. You're going to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Join with me in prayer. Mighty Father, as we come to you, Lord God, as we enter into this holy week. Father, I pray that every born-again child, every believer in Jesus Christ, Lord, would look to you this week, Lord God, that we would, we would reorient everything, that we would meditate on what our Lord did, that we would meditate on the price that he paid for our sin. Not that we could punch a ticket, Lord God, and be exempt from your judgment. But that we would declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here watching or listening that knows not this Jesus, Lord, Father, would you extend thy hand to convict? Would you extend thy hand to rebuke? Would you extend thy hand to admonish? Would you extend thy hand to reprove? And almighty God, would you extend thy hand to save? For the word of God tells us, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Spirit of God, convict them to run to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.